Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So we've been studying the book of Zechariah for slightly over two months. Um, This is the next to last quote-unquote installment. Lord willing, next week will be the tenth week and we'll finish our study of the book of Zechariah. Um, There's some ways that you almost look at it and think, man, I wish we would have taken 20 to 30 weeks to go through this because there's so much information that's here that we just kind of gloss over. Marsha asked me this morning about a certain section. Are you going to talk about that? And I said, probably not. And uh, it's just... You know, there's so much that you can talk about, so much that you can kind of analyze and try to think, what is this, what is that? And sometimes I think we, we miss the big point because we're focusing on some details that maybe aren't as important as the fact of what is actually happening. And so the, the big picture for me of the book of Zechariah is God's zeal for Zion, Yahweh's zeal for Zion. But in that as well then is that... that he himself, Jehovah himself, Yahweh himself, it says over and over again, Yahweh himself is going to express his love for Zion by coming himself. And as we're going to see today, there is a clear, clear, clear statement about who Jehovah Yahweh is. And so when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, when I talk to Mormons, I don't witness from the New Testament. I always witness from the Old Testament. And I start to ask him, who is the Eternal One? Who who, who is that? Because they're going to say it's God. Well, define who God is to you, and they always want to come back to Jehovah for the Jehovah's Witnesses, or to Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Um, in your Bibles, as the creator. And so my comment to them is that if I can show you that Jehovah has to be Jesus, will you accept the fact that Jesus is God? Not a God, that he is the God. If you're saying that this entity is the eternal one, and I can show you unequivocally, not my opinion, but God's word declares it, what will you do with that? Do you really want to know the truth? God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The question is, do you really want to know truth? I don't care about people's opinions. What I want to know is what God's word says. And I can go back to decisions. I can go back to a time at Woody, and some of you met Woody at family camp. I can go back to Woody's table when he was sitting there with Barry Kortz, who was a missionary from Argentina, and we were sitting there and debating, debating, they weren't debating, I was debating, creation versus evolution. Because I believed in evolution. Because I was taught evolution. And it had to be. I mean, how could the earth only be so, so, da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And I was then told um, by my mom, who was trying to help me, that the evolution in the Bible could go hand in hand. That's called theistic evolution. It doesn't go hand in hand. It's a lie. That's part of Satan's lie. And I had to sit there and read, and all they had me do was read God's word. You read it. You tell me what it says. That's my favorite approach in talking to people now. Read God's word. And so on Friday in my meeting, um, by the end of it, 
the, the one individual laughed and said, said well, what part? And she kind of laughed and said, I know, start at verse 1. And because I just want you to read the passage. Read the entire chapter. Tell me what it says. I'm not going to tell you what it says. I want you to tell me what it says. That way you're not saying that I'm trying to convince you of anything. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I just want you to read God's word to know the truth. The truth will set you free. So it's so exciting to me when I come to books like this and we, we get to study it because in Zechariah, this is one of the books I ultimately will go to. There is such a clear presentation of who Yahweh is. And so as we get into these final chapters, I don't know how you can read it and not understand that Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus. I've said, and you've, if you've been here a while, you've heard, if Jesus is in Yahweh, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm not even a Biblicist anymore. I'm throwing away the Bible. I'll be a creationist because I've come across that bridge. There is no way... No way, scientifically, mathematically, statistically, there is no way that this existed without someone creating. Make sense? But if Jesus is in Yahweh, I'm throwing the book away. Because it's all throughout it. It's who he is. It's not a debatable point for me. So every time they come past my house, I'll always go back and I'll check myself out because I want to know the truth. If the Mormons are right, I want to be a Mormon. If Jehovah Witnesses are right, I want to be a Jehovah Witness. Do you get it? I mean, I don't care about a label. That's why we're a Bible church. I don't care about a label. I don't want to be a Baptist. I don't want to be a Lutheran. I don't want to be a Catholic. I don't want to be a Presbyterian. I want to be a follower of Yeshua, a follower of Jesus. And you've got to ask yourself, as you come into these passages, do you really care about knowing what God teaches, and in applying it then to your life. Because that's really where the rubber meets the road. So last week, we got into the um, fourth word of Yahweh to Zechariah. Zechariah is broken up into five words of Yahweh to Zechariah. It speaks five times um, throughout this book. And so last week, we finished up the fourth word of Yahweh. We took two weeks to look at that. And in that um, passage, we saw, again, how... Um, this concept, and I'm going to come to there and I'll flip back to the other one, again, of how prophecy is kind of, you know, again, it, it's looking out there, but again, you're only seeing mountaintops, okay? You're seeing big events. You're not seeing all the things that are in between. Um, it does, doesn't write that way. And so you can see I've kind of moved my arrows a little bit from last week, if you were really paying attention, because I said, i got to just do this. This is kind of nuts. Anyway, so here's Zechariah, you know, standing here, and he sees, the first thing he sees is Alexander, the coming of Alexander the Great. And God gives him the details there. And again, if you go to the book of Daniel, you go to the book of Isaiah, you go to the book of Ezekiel, there are so much prophecies regarding the coming of Alexander the Great, even though he wasn't even alive, even though Greece wasn't even a nation. The details of his coming and destruction of Tyre is so in such great detail, it's an amazing thing to me. It drives liberals crazy because they think it has to be written after the fact because no one could know that much ahead of time. You're right. No one could. But who can? God. And he declared it to these different prophets so that we would have an unequivocal rendering of the truth of God so that when you come to these things and you see the truth of his prophecies, that everything else is true. What is going to happen is going to happen just like what he declared it was going to happen did happen. Does that make sense? 
And so you have Alexander the Great coming, and then you have Rome and, and Titus coming, and how Rome was going to come through the north, and it was going to be like a burning brand, and it was just going to waste the, the, the land, and Rome did. I mean, they were, uh, uh, they were uh, under Roman authority for so long until finally Rome had it with all of their uprisings, and they sent Titus in to just totally destroy the land. And that's when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Okay? And so we read about these things in Zechariah, how these things come. In, now, prophetically, okay, but we can see where they came the past. Okay? And then we've got the, the coming of the first coming of Jesus. And it looks like this one is in front of that one, but it's not. This one is actually behind there. And so when you're looking way back to the distance from Zechariah's point of view, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, we're kind of, kind of blend together. And who knows how God then puts those together. But So Jesus Christ came, but when Jesus Christ came, the, the, the Israelites, they were kind of meshing things together, and they were kind of thinking that Jesus was going to come how? A conquering king. But Zechariah declared, remember, this is from just last week, Zechariah declared that when, when Messiah came, how was he going to come? Lowly, humbly, and riding upon a, a donkey. And, in this, so we're, and then, then he's going to finally come again as a conquering king, and so we're going to pick it up in the fifth word now. We're going to pick up that same concept. Let's see if I can go backwards here. Oh, wrong way. We're going, to go, we're going to continue on with that same thought now into that second coming of Christ. But within this concept of His coming, there's going to be this, this, this parenthetical thought, and that is the spiritual restoration, which we're going to look at very briefly today and then pick it up there again next week. Okay? It is a tying parenthetical thought, because this is all about the restoration of Israel. And in the restoration of Israel, we're going to see the physical restoration, that Israel becomes an entity again. But then the political restoration, where it, it not just is revived, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, it's not just revived, but then it's restored the power. And that's when Christ comes and he reigns as David upon the throne. Okay, But in the, in, in the middle of that, the tying that together behind the scenes, which isn't necessarily the, the big ticket item that we, we, pick it, we, we picture, but it really is that there's going to be this spiritual revival of Israel. And as we're going to see in a few moments, I say in a moment, but you understand it's really going to be in a few moments, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. How exciting! And I hope. I mean, I got to hold on and just jump instead of jumping right to that part because it's so exciting. They're going to look upon him whom they have pierced, and they're going to mourn. They're going to mourn. They're going to cry, and God's going to open up this fountain of cleansing for them. And so we're told by Paul in the book of Romans, and so all Israel will be saved. And you say, how can it be? I don't know how it can be, but God does. How cool is that? Because God is the one. Who's in control? So, we're going to look then at this restoration of Israel. And the, the first thing we see, first of all, before we get into this, this is still preliminary, um, is this is all talking about end times. And I had that on that slide and I forgot to mention. This is all about end times, okay? And how do I know it's end times? How do I know this isn't about um, during the days of Rome and that kind of stuff? Well, because very clearly how it's written, if you listen to as Chuck was reading us over and over and over again, you hear the word, that day, that day, that day, that day. And prophetically, when you go through the different prophets, when they talk about that day or the day of the Lord, which we'll talk about in a moment, it's always referring to the end times. 
Okay? And so you can see, in that day is used 16 times in 44 verses. Now, that's um, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. So 16 out of 44 verses. Would you say that's kind of occurs a lot? Okay? And so when you study God's Word, it's called inductive Bible study, okay? You study God's Word. You look for recurring themes to help you understand what's been happening, right? Okay, so in that day is pretty recurring, okay? And then we're told in chapter 14, verse 1, that that day is the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, okay? We talk about the day of the Lord a lot, but a lot of times we use the day of the Lord wrongfully. And a couple weeks ago, I referred to Joel in the day of the Lord, how it says, and I, I was wrong, it's Amos. But in Amos 5, verse 18, we read, Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh, for what good is the day of Yahweh to you? It will be a day of darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Now, is that exactly how you would have described what you're looking forward to? No. What are we looking forward to? When you talk about the day of the Lord, be honest, what are you looking forward to? Say again. Christ's return. And that looks what? Glorious. That looks exciting. You're looking forward to the rapture. Come on, be honest. You're, looking for, you're just like the Jews. Okay? You're looking for the conquering king who's coming, and you don't have to worry about anything. As Americans, we are so sheltered. We think we got a pass on persecution. Think about all around the world, the 1040 window. Do you think Christians there think they got a pass on persecution? But as Americans, we think Jesus is going to come back before we have to be what? We have to struggle at all. I mean, sacrifice. Oh, I sacrifice for Jesus. I give 10% of all that I own to him. Well, okay, not all that I own. I give 10% of what comes in. Well, not really 10%. I give 10% after I pay my taxes. Well, okay, I don't really give 10% of that either. I, you know, and, and, and we, do you get what I'm saying? We, we, we want to talk about how righteous and how, how we are, suffer for Jesus, for the name of Jesus. Really? The day of Yahweh, by his own definition, is going to be a day of woe, a day of darkness. Look what it says in Thessalonians. That's, say, oh, that was Old Testament. What about New Testament? Okay, this is New Testament. This is Paul. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning verse 1, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, okay? So we know that this statement, the day of the Lord, actually refers back to the day of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, D, but there is no word for Yahweh in the Greek, so they used the word kyrios, okay, which is Lord, but we know that then this is, and so, like a Jehovah Witness Bible, they would understand this, and they put the day of Jehovah here, okay? That the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say, you've got to ask yourself the question of, who's they? When they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not... Not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So, what does Paul say that the day of Christ's return, if you would, the day of the Lord, will be like? Say again. Is it thief in the night? But when they say what? Peace and safety. Okay, so therefore, they're going to think what? Everything's good. And then what's going to happen? Quote, unquote, all Hell is going to break loose. 
sudden destruction is going to come upon them. Everybody's going to be thinking what? Oh, we're good. We have done it as a world. We have brought about this world peace and world unity thing. Okay, just think about this, okay? Now, I think that all, I, I think, and I can show you this biblically, but this is my opinion. I still want to state it's my opinion. That all prophecy is directly from the perspective of Jerusalem and from Jews, okay, from Israel's perspective, unless it is specifically stated otherwise, okay? Because that's God's house. That's where God, God dwells, and that's where he's going to establish it. I think that they is Israel, okay? I think it's the world as a whole, but I think specifically it's probably Israel, okay? That he's talking about the Jews. This is Paul, and he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks, okay? So I could be wrong, and that's why I just tell you it's my opinion, okay? And I'm not stating that emphatically this has to be it, but I think it's those who are in darkness, and I think that he is speaking specifically then of the Jews at this moment, okay? That the Jews are going to think they're going to have this moment of peace, and they're going to think that everything is good. They're good without God, okay? Yeah, we say without Christ, but they're already good without Christ, okay? But they're going to they're have this thing politically done. They think they're going to be good, and all of a sudden, literally, the nations are going to rise up against them. And that's what we're going to be looking at here in Zechariah, okay? So that's the day we're talking about, the centrality of that day, but then also the certainty of the day, because we read here in the very beginning that from Zechariah 12, verse 1, this is, thus says Yahweh, and then he defines himself. Just in case you needed to know who Yahweh was, he's going to define himself. Who is he? He's the the one who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man with them. He is sovereign over the heavens, over the earth, and over man himself. He brought you into the world. You heard your parents say that? No, they hopefully didn't say that. But, they, but he brought you into the world, and he what? He can take you back out. Okay? He's the one who's formed the spirit of man within him. Okay? So that's who he is. Okay? And then the definitiveness of the action, we're told six times it shall come to pass, 14 times I will. I will. Yahweh says, I will do this. So therefore, there is a certainty that this stuff is going to happen. Okay? This isn't a matter of, well, maybe so, but it's what's going to happen. So we want to go on then to begin this with the physical restoration of Israel. Okay? And this is exciting stuff for me. First of all, um, there's not a whole lot to teach here other than what do we see? Verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness, Ra'al, to all the surrounding peoples. So, just a, a quick little statement that I don't want to just kind of let go of it, and that is the existence of what? Israel. Okay, this is a big deal, because God has already declared that Israel is going to go away again. Remember? That even though they've been brought together again right now in Zechariah, remember, the people don't like him, and if you, again, the words of Jesus, they want to persecuting Zechariah as well. Okay? So they don't like his words. Why? Because here they are regathering, and God's using Zechariah to tell the people that there's going to be a time when they're going to be regathered again, which means that they must be what? Scattered again, right? And so this isn't good news. You know, he's telling them good news. He's talking about the Messiah who ultimately is going to come in that day, but in that day he's going to regather them together, right? So there comes a point then where Jerusalem is going to be once more, okay? And it's going to be there as the, the... the capital, the, the center of Israel. And so what happened in 1948? Israel became a nation again. Now, I understand people say, well, that actually was going on for a period of time. I get that. But the point is that in 1948, they became a nation. And they hadn't been one since 
70 AD. You get that? That's why, again, theologies are the way theologies are, because there were a bunch of theologians in the Middle Ages who didn't believe the Word of God. I'm being cruel, and and that's purposeful, but I, I also recognize that if I lived in those days, I wonder what I would say, what I would do, okay? So I'm not trying to be purposely mean, but where push comes to shove, what, where does Reformed theology come from? Why do people teach that the church has replaced Israel? Why do we have replacement theology? Because they didn't believe God's word. They didn't believe what God said about him being faithful to Israel and that he would once again restore. And so if you're looking out for a thousand years and Israel doesn't exist, you're thinking what? It's not going to. So therefore, God didn't really mean what he said. So therefore, I have to reinvent what God means. Right? So go all the way back to the the series on dispensationalism, right? Good morning. You have to decide. Do I really wish you a good morning? Do I really care that you have a good morning? Did I really mean nothing by that? It was just, ah, that's just what you say in the morning. It doesn't really matter. Or did I really say, hey, baby, can you go make the bacon and eggs for me? So, so if I say good morning to Marcia when we first wake up, she's probably going to hit me, actually. She's going to say, go get your shower. Anyways, um, you know, quit cussing me out in the morning. <laughs> it's not 10 o'clock. No, I'm just joking. Anyways, but she has three ways to take good morning, doesn't she? It's the same way with the Word of God. I know Gabrielle's saying, no, that's right. Anyways, how do you take what God says? I'm going to take it literally, okay, that all this stuff's going to play out. So God says, this is how it's going to be. Israel's going to be in existence one more time. But then you have this, I know, big word, execration, okay? Because it fits, EX. Anyways, but, but it really defines what Israel's going to be to everybody around them. It, I mean, look at what he says about them. Verse 2. I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding people. Verse 3. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. Israel is going to be a place of turmoil for the entire world. The world, the surrounding peoples, in all peoples, so note the words that are being used there, the surrounding peoples, so I'll make them cup trembling all surrounding peoples in a very heavy stone for all peoples. So note the terms. All the nations are going to hate the fact that Israel is a nation again. Isn't it amazing how many other nations is there on the face of the earth, other than the U.S. at, at times? Do all the nations hate? Israel. How many other ones? We don't... No, no. How many other nations are hated by all the other nations? Europe. Yeah. I mean, really, think about it. We, we can talk about North Korea, but even North Korea has friends. Does that make sense? And why do you honestly suppose, then, that people dislike the United States? Because we're friends of Israel. See, we don't think about that, but the reality is, again, beyond, behind the scenes, there's a spiritual war going on. And you've got to always remember that. Okay? And so, God says in his word, I'll bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. Okay? Once you align yourself with them, then whatever the people think of Israel, they're going to think of you. Okay? So, so anyways, so you got this going on. There's going to be this time, this cup of trembling. Now, I've got some verses, and they're on your sermon note sheets, your references, um, about this, this um, 
this cup of drunkenness. Literally, the word is the cup of trembling, and I think I have that up here, the cup of trembling, okay, to all. The word drunkenness, I, I think is, there's, a, there's a Hebrew word for drunkenness, and this isn't it. Psalm 60, verse 1 to 3, and you can look at this later. I'm just going to say verse, th- verse 3, but you can look at it in context. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Okay? In Isaiah 51, we read, um, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the, the hand of Yahweh the, f- the cup of his fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. So Israel will have done that. But look at what Isaiah says in that same passage, Isaiah 51. It says, we have been made to drink the cup of trembling. But he continues on. He says, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, not our word, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you. So though Israel has drank of, drunk of the cup of trembling of God, and that God has, has brought confusion, if you would, over Israel for thousands of years and, and has set them aside, now he's bringing them back together again, and the judgment wherewith he judged Israel, now he's going to start using Israel as the tool of his judgment, his cup of confusion, for all the other nations. As God says, or through Peter, he says, and if judgment is going to come, it will begin where? In the house of God. God always judges his own first. Isn't that fair? I mean, otherwise we'd say it was a, was a what? A double standard, right? God always judges his own people. The standard that he's going to use is the same standard. Judge not lest you be judged. And with what judgment you judge others, it should be measured unto you. And why do you look at the, the, the speck that's in your brother's eye when you have a beam in your own eye? Take care of the beam that's in your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take care of the speck that's in your brother's eye. Well, God's the same. And so he's going he's to cleanse the house first. Do you get it? I hope that that sinks in a little bit. He's going to cleanse the house first. Before he worries. We're focusing on God what? Cleansing the world. But you understand that when he goes to cleanse the world, he's going to start where? With you. With me. With his house. Israel, he's already been working on. But in the end times, there's going to be a cleansing of the church. I really firmly believe that. Okay? And you can read Matthew 24, 25. I can't go through that right now. There will be a cleansing of the church as well. So, but back to Israel. God's going to make them this execration. Um, we're just going to put it on. But Yahweh then as well, God, Yahweh, is also going to put it on the heart then of the, um, the, the governors of the land to, to expand the land. Um, and he says, verse 6, In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile, like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. There's going to be this um, desire upon the governors to expand. Okay? And as they desire to expand, okay, there's going to be this time, and I didn't do this in order, and I need to, because we're going to come back to this comment here, verse 4 and 5. Um, because I think that what God's doing here, 
this is my interpretation of this, okay? I, I get this, but track with me and see, see, tell me if you see this, okay? That he's actually given then this detailed history of Israel because um, Israel becomes a nation. The other nations have a hard time with it. What, what happens in the 1960s? Say again? Wars. The Arabs go against them. Now, this was just a big culmination of the fact that they continually fought against them, right? But, but God gave, through the initial battles, right? He gives Zion, Jerusalem, to, to Jerusalem, right? And so we have then Egypt and Jordan and Syria all gathered together on the Six-Day War, right? To pulverize and annihilate Israel, okay? And so, verse 4 in that day, says Yahweh, I will strike every horse with confusion, being dumbfounded, its rider with madness. I will open my eyes in the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. When you, when you go back and you analyze what happened, the, the secular world looks back and they go, wow, what an amazing thing that the, the discoveries that they made and yada, 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 yada. And you don't see God. But it's like the book of Esther. God's not mentioned but all through the book of Esther, what? God is present. How does Israel find out about a 15-minute window of Egypt for their air force being all down? Why did Egypt even do that? How could it, the, the, the pilots of Israel fly at, I think it was 100 feet off of the Mediterranean? They had a start, I can't remember, I'm going to mess up my details, but they had to start a significant time between for that 15-minute window to get to Egypt. And they had to do it in such a way that Egypt would never know that they did it. And they, they had, so therefore, they had to be below the radar, so they had to fly at 100 feet above the Mediterranean. So, Jim, you're Air Force, right? They tip a wing. How long does it take at 100 feet to hit the water? Not real long, okay? One slight mistake, you're down, okay? You've got the formation going on. One guy messes up, the whole formation's down. Make sense? So they're, they're flying, and they hit Egypt, Bam! Right in the 15-minute window, they wipe out the Egyptian Air Force. From wiping out the Egyptian Air Force, they keep going back, sorties, 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 wiping out the Egyptian Air Force. Now, the Egyptian, who had the, the strong Air Force at the time, can't come after Israel at all with an Air Force, okay? So now they have to come in with a, with a land force, okay? At the same time, the Israeli Air Force is going to do something else, but I'll come back to that in a moment. At the same time, now Egypt has to attack as a pure land battle. There was an... Israeli scientist who had decided years before, a couple years before, that we shouldn't be just giving our, our, um, our army guys one liter of water a day. Actually, they should be having one liter of water every hour. And if, so we need to make them hydrated, 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 hydrated. And so the, the army, Israeli army, says, ah, that's, you know, we can't do all that. So he says, can I at least prove it? Can I, can I have so many soldiers and can I show you the importance of this? Sure, you can do that. And so he did a force march with this group of soldiers from Jerusalem to the northern Israel and back. They, just like, so picture New Jersey. You're going you're gonna to march from South Jersey to North Jersey and back down. Okay? Force march. Okay? But every hour... Every hour, he stopped them and made them drink, made them drink one liter of water. When they got back to Jerusalem, they were stronger and more fit than they were before they left. People thought, no way, they're going to be wiped out. They're going to be able to do this, you know, da, 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 da. So they began this practice then of forcing a liter of water every hour into their army. When this all happens, now Egypt has to attack with a pure land force, right? 
Also, Israel was the first ones to use um, napalm, okay? Um, and so they, they dropped it on, on Egyptian tanks coming through mountain passes that clogged up all the passes. No longer could the, the Egyptian army pass through the mountain passes. And now all of a sudden, all their armies were stuck walking in the desert with one liter of water a day, whereas the Jewish soldiers were totally hydrated. We're told that more Egyptians died in the desert because of dehydration than ever being shot by the Israelis. Again, a couple of years earlier, there was a, a guy who was Israel's Mossad who, who had infiltrated Syria's government and became a military, military advisor. And so he was brought by the Syrians to um, Golan Heights to overlook the, the, the Syrian um, artillery so that he could give them some recommendations and that kind of stuff and just kind of be wild by all of this. And so he looked at him and said, wow, you know, but this is great. He says, but, you know, these guys are going to be baking in the sun all the time. You need to give these guys some shade. You need to, like, plant a terebinth tree over every one of the, so these guys can have some shade. Say again? Eucalyptus tree. A eucalyptus tree. He's right. Eucalyptus tree. And so, um, so they did that. They planted that. Well, a little bit later, this guy was found out as being um, an operant of, of Israel, and he was hung um, on public TV for everybody to see. Ah, ha, 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 we found your spy, and he's dead now. But they never went back to consider the advice that they followed that he gave. And so after the Israeli Air Force wiped out Egypt, do you know what the next thing they did was? They wiped out every eucalyptus tree on Golan Heights. They wiped out every eucalyptus tree on the Golan Heights. Why? Because <laughs> that's exactly they wiped out the, the artillery of Syria. Amazing. How coincidental is that? And so when you begin to read God's word and you, and you realize the detail that God has placed in here. No, he didn't say, and, and so there's going to be planes. I mean, could you imagine? It's like John writing the Revelation. You know, you got these locusts who have the head of a lion, and there's stingers that come out the front and the back, and, and you kind of wonder, are, there, are those helicopters? Or are those, you know, some of the, the attack helicopters we've got right now? I mean, how would, how would they describe those things if they saw them? Make sense? So, so all this is going on. Israel becomes a nation. They become this cup of confusion to the, to, the, to the nations. They can't stand them, right? And so, but God now says that he'll come and he will strike the armies. Even though from man's perspective, it looks like man is doing it, God told us ahead of time he was going to be the one who does this. And then he will incline the governors to growth. So that, that Israel, the rulers of Israel, the governors, note they don't have a what? King. Note they don't have a king. What should have Israel wanted to have immediately when they became a nation again? A king. But they don't. God takes that away. And this is that verse 7 thing. I was thinking about this since you asked that question, how that plays in. Look what it says, verse 7. And Yahweh will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than, the, than that of Judah. I think God specifically didn't allow the house of David to rise up at that moment. Why? Say again? Well, they would have expected a king, but that would have been their king. Did you get it? But it wasn't their what? King. The king was yet to come. So God withheld them 
Do you get it? From, from looking to the house of David. I think it's very interesting right now, and you can check this out on the Internet. Again, I, I shared this. Um, oh, I can't remember what book we were studying. But anyways, but there, is, um, there are people trying to prove their Davidic lineage right now to, to try to prove that they are the potential um, Messiah to come. It's amazing. Anyways, and so because they're, 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 they don't believe what God has written. You get it? And so, but God has it all here, so it's really exciting. So anyway, so God works it out, so they have governors, and that these governors will want to expand the territory. What does the expansion of the territory do to the rest of the world, who already can't stand them? Makes them very angry. angry. Now they're really execrated, you know? And so now they're, I mean, now the, the whole thing is they want this annihilation, okay? And so, but when it happens, we're told that Yahweh then shall defend the inhabitants, how? By himself. This is very exciting to me. This is it. I mean, when it comes down to it. Verse 9. And it shall be in that day that I will seek, search diligently required, to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me. Who's speaking? Yahweh, specifically, don't just say God, specifically, Yahweh. In the Jehovah Witness Bible still, New World Translation, it says, Jehovah, Jehovah speaking. Then they will look upon me, whom they have pierced. Well, it doesn't mean that. It means, you know, that when they pierced Jesus, it was like piercing Jehovah. Really? It doesn't say that. It was exactly like that. That's exactly what Jesus, Jehovah is saying. And because he says, then they will look on me. So looking on me really signifies what? A physical thing, doesn't it? I'm looking at you. In my mind's eye, I'm looking at Jehovah, who when Jesus was pierced. Wait, wait, wait. It doesn't say that. You're, again, saying that I don't mean good morning when I say good morning. You're saying, I really mean this. And now all of a sudden we have this big fight going on because I didn't mean what you think I thought I meant. And anyways, we go on, right? And so this is what is stated. Then they will look upon me whom they appears. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now there's two sides of that. I think that's a double-edged sword there. Because Jesus is the what? Called the firstborn, okay? But, but the idea there is really more of a description, how would you cry if you only had one son and he died? You would weep bitterly. So the, the point is the description of the mourning, if you would, is that it's what? It's a great mourning. They really comprehend what they did. That Jehovah came to the earth himself. And they what? They killed him. And their eyes are going to be opened. In this moment, the scales like Paul are going to fall off. And they're going to see. They're going to see Jesus coming. So go with me to to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. This is so exciting. Sorry. Do you got two more hours? Anyways. And I'll be the only one here. Yeah, Maybe, maybe not. Revelation 19. This is 
you got the, um, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then beginning of verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In the Hebrew, that would be? Chesed Nemet. Chesed Nemet. So fun. That's who Yahweh is. Yahweh is Chesed Nemet. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who's that? Jesus, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. God was the Word. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and, and, and the life was the light of men. And then we read in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And His name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. We'll read about that in Zechariah 14. Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, Jesus is going to come. And that's called the Battle of Armageddon. When all the nations are going to gather together in, in, the, in the Valley of Megiddo, they're going to come and Jesus is going to come and he's going to destroy the nations, just as we read about here in Zechariah. Okay? You can go to Zechariah 14. We'll go there next week, but for the sake of time, I, don't, I can't go there right now. But you can read in Zechariah 14 where we read about then how Jesus is going to come okay, and the saints behind him. And, and the Holy One's with him, and, and he's going to do this destruction, okay? But that's all the leading into, oh, and there's going to be recognized that Jesus is Yahweh that's there as well, okay? But that all leads into this, and I said I'm not going to go spend a lot of time on this, but this is the, the important part of it, okay? This is all going to lead into this spiritual revival, this spiritual restoration. They're going to look upon him whom they have pierced, and they're going to realize we have blown it all these years. And get it? When I was 23 years old, and I was reading God's Word, because someone told me, have you heard God's Word? And I said, no, well, you know, read God's Word. I read God's Word, and I realized if I couldn't even live to my own standards, how could I ever live to God's standards? And I came face to face with God for the first time. Not just about God, but with God. To know Him, not just know about Him. When my eyes were opened... And I understood what Jesus said. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Focusing on who God is leads then to this spiritual transformation. We'll talk about this next week. It's initiated by Yahweh himself. It's not initiated by man. Yahweh initiates it. It's individual in nature. You can look at those verses there in 12 um, as, as, we, as we see it. It's by, by Nathan and, and his wives. It's each family, each individual is going to give an account on their own. They individually are each going to look upon Jesus, whom they have pierced. They're going to understand who he is, that he's God in the flesh. And they themselves individually are going to come. It's not a national, all of a sudden you're going to, like um, Constantine try to do and march the Roman army through the, the, the river and say, okay, now they've all been baptized, they're a Christian army. It doesn't happen that way. 
And it's not going to happen that way. It's going to be an individual thing. They each individually are going to look upon the Lord and they're going to realize what they have done, what they have done themselves. And it will change them. If you think you're getting to heaven because your mom or dad are saved, if you think you're getting to heaven because your spouse is saved, if you think you're getting to heaven because somebody else is saved, you're sadly mistaken. It's going to be a time of cleansing, the opening of the fountain, the rebuking of the prophets, where God is going to, to come and he's going to cleanse the people, he's going to rebuke the prophets, and then we're going to look at next week the sacrifice of the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Jesus himself. This is all that parenthetical thought. He's going to go back to this whole process then of this one whom they have pierced, and they're all going to be looking at this thing, and they're going to realize, wow, we have failed, and how he allowed this, the shepherd to be struck by us. We have done this thing. And then there's going to be the refining of the remnant, where two-thirds are going to be destroyed, one-third remain. They're going to pass under the rod. You can go back to David. I think I put that on your sermon note sheets. Anyways, to, to David, how he, what he did with the Ammonites. I think it was the Ammonites. Anyways, where they used a rod, and that's what they did when they, when they took over a nation. Two-thirds were killed. One-third was allowed to be remained. And God says it's going to be the same thing with Israel. That's kind of rough. Only a remnant, remnant will remain. Jesus said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many there are that go thereat. Narrow is the path and straight is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. May God allow us to be part of that, not just the, but part of that few. I don't know your hearts. You don't know mine. I mean, I pray that everybody here is part of that few. But I'm telling you, the day's coming. And it may be today. Where Jesus comes back in the clouds. And then it's a whole different world. Do you know him as your Savior? How do you view the return of Israel to the land? Is it prophecy being fulfilled? Or is it just a coincidence? This is exciting days we live in. As we watch prophecy being fulfilled in our day. Do you believe that Christ will return to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem? He's already established it in the hearts of those who believe, but he's physically going to come and he's going to establish it on the earth. How does the realization of sin in your life affect you? Do you mourn at the disobedience and rejection of God? It's easy to look at somebody else's, but will you honestly look at your own and understand how vile you are before God? Is there a need to change the way you think? That's the word repent, and therefore change the way you act. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. You are so gracious and so kind. We don't deserve your grace. We deserve your judgment, just as Israel did. And yet, you are faithful to your word. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. God, we thank you that you willingly came, that you willingly were pierced for our transgressions, that you were wounded on our behalf, that we might have fellowship with you. 
Father, be exalted in our lives. For those who might be here who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourselves. For those who do know you, Lord, that you would help us to hunger and thirst more and more for you, to reflect you in this world, that others may come to know you. In Christ's name, amen.